to Job chapter 20. Job chapter 20. If you didn't get the sermon notes, the fellows are going to move, move through the auditorium and get that to you so you can follow along. And uh, you join me, please, as we head over to Job chapter 20 as we continue <coughs> this study that we're doing. Uh, there was an article that I read that talked about some of the difficult days that people have. And let me just, if you'd bear with me, let me just read you some of the article that talks about having a bad day. A man was working on his motorcycle on the patio, his wife nearby in the kitchen. While racing the engine, the motorcycle accidentally slipped into gear. The man, still holding on to the handlebars, was dragged along as the motorcycle burst through the glass patio doors. His wife, hearing the crash, ran in the room to find her husband cut and bleeding, the motorcycle and the shattered patio door all in a mess. She called an ambulance, and because the house sat on a fairly large hill, she went down several flights of stairs to meet the paramedics and escort them to where her husband was. While the attendants were loading her husband and the, the wife managed to right the motorcycle and push it outside, she also quickly blotted up all the gasoline with some paper towels and tossed them in the toilet. After being treated and released, the man returned home, looked at the shattered patio door and the damage done. He went into the bathroom to console himself and to take care of business. While he was sitting there, he thought he had smoked a cigarette. About to, uh, about to stand, he flipped the cigarette butt down into the toilet. The wife who was in the kitchen heard the loud explosion, her husband screaming, finding him lying on the bathroom floor, his trousers blown away and burns on his backside. She once again phoned the paramedics. The same paramedic crew was dispatched. As the paramedics carried the man down the stairs to the ambulance, they asked her how he came to burn himself. She told them. They started laughing so hard, one slipped. The stretcher slipped and fell down. The stretcher and the husband went down the steps. He fell down the remaining stairs, breaking his arm. So if you're still thinking you're having a bad day, here's another one. The average cost of rehabilitating one of the seals that was injured by the oil spill of the Exxon Valdez Oil Company in Alaska was 80000 per animal. At a special ceremony, two of the most expensively saved animals were being released back into the wild. Amid cheers and applause from the onlookers, a minute later, in full view of the audience, a killer whale, whale ate one of them. <laughs> Having a bad day. A woman came home to find her husband in the kitchen, shaking frantically, almost in a dancing frenzy, with some kind of wire running from his waist towards the electric kettle. Intending to jolt him away from the deadly current, she whacked him with a handy plank of wood, breaking his arm in two places. Up to that moment, he had been happily listening to his Walkman. Uh, two animal rights protesters were protesting at the cruelty of sending pigs to the slaughterhouse in Bonn, Germany. Suddenly... All 2,000 pigs broke loose, escaped through the broken fence, and stampeded the two hopeless protesters who were injured severely. I want to say they deserve it. But uh, here's one. Iraqi terrorists, and they give his name, didn't pay enough postage on a letter bomb. It came back with return to sender, stamped on it. Forgetting it was a bomb, he opened it, and it exploded. Now, how are you feeling about your bad day? Is the way the article ends. We're, we're in Job chapter 21, and Job is having a bad few months. Job is just having a horrible, horrible time. It's just so difficult for him. And we've been talking about how Job's and feeling and what he's discussing. I think this is one of the most difficult two passages so far up to this point. What Job is explaining and what he is saying. And in this text, what happens is, now Zophar, the third of his three, three friends, is going to speak up. And so in chapter 20, we have Zophar talking and giving his opinion 
you can read through most of the thoughts yourself. And so let me just get you where the sense is. So Zophar is going to say exactly what the others have said. Look down in verse 4. Knowest thou not this of old, since man was placed upon the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment? Though his, the wicked man's excellency, mount up to the heavens, and his head reach into the clouds, yet he shall perish forever like his own dung. They, have which, they which have seen him will say, Where is he? He shall fly away as a dream, and shall not be found. Yea, he shall be chased away as a vision of the night. The eye also which saw him shall see him no more. Neither shall his place be any more be, shall any more behold him. His children that seek to please the poor, and his hands shall restore their goods. His bones are full of the sin of his youth. And it goes on and on and on. And basically what he concludes is down in verse 19. Because he hath oppressed and hath forsaken the poor, because he has violently taken away a house which he did not build, surely he shall not feel quietness in his belly. He shall not save that which he desired. There shall none of his meat be left. Therefore shall no man look for his good. And it keeps on going and it ends with this comment. Verse 29. This is the portion of a wicked man from God and the heritage appointed unto him by God. What he's basically is doing is saying that those who are wicked are going to have short-lived enjoyment or prosperity. There's going to be happiness, but it's not going to last at all, hardly at all. No matter who they are, even if they're wealthy, even if they're prosperous, even if they ascend up into the hills, even though his excellency be great, they are going to suffer. They're going to have all kinds of problems because of their evil deeds. This is another one of those times that what many feel is that the men, the three men, are accusing Job of several things. Is there, are they accusing Job that he has not been gracious to the poor? He oppressed people and he had business dealings. We don't know. But Job, we know that God says he was a righteous man. We don't know if his friends are accusing him or not. But we know this. That what they conclude, and as we talked about this morning, the, the friends of Job said, the wicked always suffer in this life. This is the way it always works. This is how God always deals with them. And we know that that's just not true. That sometimes the wicked prosper. That sometimes they do well. Implied in all this is, Job, your sufferings are because you've done some great wickedness. And so that's, that's the gist of, jo, of Zophar's uh, content of chapter 20. Let me remind you, okay, that what Zophar and Eliphaz and Bildad have been saying, they're wrong. They're wrong. That's, that's seen several times. Job mentions it in when he responds to, uh, to this comments by uh, Zophar. He even says at the end of his comments in verse 21, How then comfort you me in vain? Seeing in your answers, in what you are saying, there is falsehoods. You're wrong. Now, Job isn't our source of, of final authority here. There are others who chimed in on this. There is another, a fourth friend, his name is Elihu, who's going to speak later on. Elihu, after the men are all done, he's going to say, Hey, listen, I've been listening to this conversation, and you guys are wrong. You guys have not proven at all that Job has sinned. He's asked you, point it out, point it out, and you haven't. And so later on, we're going to receive, or Elihu says this, they have found no answer, yet they've condemned Job. He's going to make this comment. There was none of you that answered Job or convinced him, proven to him that he has done something wrong, even though he's invited you to do that. Now, again, we have Job saying they're wrong. We have Elihu saying they're wrong. But this is the one that is really important for you and me. We have God himself, as this whole book concludes, God says, my wrath is kindled against you. And he names Eliphaz and your friends. For you have not spoken about me 
what is right as my servant Job has. And so as we're going through the book, you and I should keep in mind that at the end of the book, we find God saying what those three men are saying in their counsel is wrong. What Job is saying, a lot of it is correct. And so with that in mind, let's jump up a little bit. Job is going to respond to Zophar in chapter 21. Several things that are just interesting for you to keep in mind. This is the shortest of all the responses that Job makes. And in this, it's unusual that this is the only time Job speaks that in the portion of what he is saying, he doesn't turn and in the portion say and talk to Bildad or Zophar or Eliphaz and turn and start talking to God. Every other time, up to this point and after this point, he will shift from talking to them to talking to him. But this time he doesn't. There is no shift. There's no prayer. This is the only time that this is going to happen. Job is very confident that this is true. The wicked will one day suffer. Look at the end of the text. When Job speaks up and Job comments, he says, this is true, that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction. They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. It is true. It is true that the wicked will suffer one day at judgment. But the question that's being brought up is, do the wicked always suffer in this life? Do they prosper in this life or do they lose everything in this life? And so the discussion that's happening in 21 and previous to the friends is talking about right now, here, here and now, and they're insistent that rich, um, the wicked do not keep their riches long. The wicked lose their health. The wicked, they lose their kids. And they're pointing out everything that Job has had. And they said, you're wicked, you're wicked, you're wicked. Now, Job does something in this chapter that is very, very unusual for many who are studying it. Job is going to ask a series of questions. He's asking that in response to what Zophar says. He's basically going to say, Zophar, if what you and Elihu and Bildad, I'm sorry, Eliphaz and Bildad say is true, then what about this? And that's the entire response that he has. He is in this whole section. He is going to say, well, then if what you're saying is true, then how do you answer this? How, what about that? And when he's making these comments, I want you to catch the flavor of it. Jump into verse 1. But Job answered and said, Hear diligently my speech and let this be your consolations. You know, stop saying what you're saying. Listen, suffer me that I may speak. And after I, that I have spoken, then fine, you can mock on. Go ahead. Criticize me. But listen, as for me is my complaint to man, and if it were so, why should, why should my, not my spirit be troubled? Mark me. Be astonished. Lay your hand upon your mouth. Even when I remember I'm afraid, and trembling takes hold on my flesh. In other words, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to say something to you. And even as I think about what I'm going to say, I'm saying it with trepidation. I'm saying it with fear. I'm saying it with some anxiousness, because what I'm going to say, okay, this isn't what we normally say. This isn't what we talk about at church. This isn't what we say out loud. And I'm going to say and ask you some things that I am somewhat hesitant to say. He is going to ask a series of questions that are really hard questions that typically we, we don't want to verbalize. We don't want to say out loud. We don't, want to, we don't want to appear to be irreverent or not believing in the Word of God. But he's going to ask the questions. And he's going to ask some really hard questions that most believers, you know, it's a reaction like if some, somebody, some teenager came up to their parents and said to mom and dad, how do you know there's a God? And many of us would respond, what? How could, oh, don't, don't say that. 
You know, why would you even ask that? Is that a legitimate question to ask? How do we know our Bible is real? Oh, no, you can't, you can't doubt that. This is what we believe. Job is going to ask those types of questions, but in relationship to the wicked. And he's saying, I'm, I, I'm hesitant to ask him, but I'm going to ask him, because this is the discussion. And so what he does is he asks a series. And as you go through the, the remainder of this chapter, I'm going to paraphrase some of the questions, okay, and just to get the sense of it as you read through the questions. The, one of the places he starts is, why do the wicked prosper? It's the same thing that Asaph writes in Psalm 73 when he is just disturbed. Why do the wicked prosper? You said that you would bless, uh, bless folk, but you would put, discipline the wicked. And yet we see the wicked getting away with wickedness. And, Zo- and Asaph is struggling. Job is too. Job is going to make these comments. He said, why is it? If what you say is true, then wherefore do the wicked live? How do they become old? Yea, they are mighty in power. How, this doesn't fit. He's going to make a comment. He says, uh, as he goes in the next, next verse, he's going to talk about their children. He's going to say, their seed is established in their sight with them. Their offspring before their eyes. They have, you know, think from Job's perspective. You've been saying that the wicked's kids will die. Well, I see a lot of wicked people who they have large families. And at the same time, my kids are dead. And I don't understand that. If what you say is true, then... Why are my kids dead? Because I'm right with the Lord. And God even said he's a righteous man. He's going to go a little bit further. And he makes come. Their houses, this is, this is Job's observation. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. He's going to talk about their businesses. He's going to say, their bull, their bull gendereth and faileth not. In other words, they're going to keep on, their cattle keep reproducing. The, the, the cows, their herds get bigger. If you say the wicked don't prosper, how come they got bigger herds than some of the righteous? And he goes on, he says in verse 11, talking about their prosperity, he's going to make comment that, that um, you know, here things are going good for them. Okay, and I'm going, to, I'm going to rephrase the question here in a moment. Basically, Job is coming from, why is it the wicked are punished, but I see that that's not always the case. I see them doing well. In fact, in verse 11 and following, he's going this way. You say that the wicked always suffer. Then why do their children enjoy life? And in the back of my mind, Job is saying, but mine are, my ten are all dead. Look what he, how he phrases it. In verse 8, he's mentioned about their offspring. Verse 11, they send forth their little ones like a flock. Well, obviously, if you're talking and comparing your kids to a flock, what's implied there? There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. There's many kids. Okay, that he's saying that, okay, their kids are large and they go forth. And what do the kids do? It says the children dance. They take the timbrel, the harp, and rejoice at the sound of the organ or the, the idea of that flute. What, what is he implying with the kids? That the kids don't have any worries, that they're having fun and everything is great and there's no threats to the wicked's kids. But my kids have died. I don't understand that. He asks another question. Why do the wicked enjoy good health? That's pointed out in the next verse, in verse 13, where he says, they spend their lives in wealth. And then he makes this comment. In a moment, they go down to the grave. This isn't the idea of in a moment, oh, they're being punished in a quick moment, they die. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He said, they don't suffer long-term illnesses. They don't go through this long, difficult process that I'm going through. The wicked don't have those same health issues. They live full, strong lives up to the very moment that they die. And I don't understand it. He makes another comment, another question. 
Why do they seem to get away with ungodly living? Look at what happens in verses 14 and 15. Therefore they say unto God, depart from us. We, we desire not the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? What profit should we have if we pray unto him? Lo, their good is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. And he's going on, he's saying, hey, these guys, they blatantly deny God. They blatantly don't want to pray. They, they, they just, they, right, they, they are shaking their fist at God and nothing happens to them like you guys say it happens. By the way, have you ever noticed any people in our society or in our world who are very wicked in their lifestyle, but they get rich? Does that happen in America? Does it happen that in the world today, some of the wicked people get to be powerful people? They own businesses. They, they, they influence policy. You think of any rich people right now that have that type of influence and and, and when they get in conversations, they're not even bashful about their beliefs or lack of beliefs. And Job is saying, this is what I see. This is what I say in sense of going. How often, he asked the question, how often, do they, how often do they really, really suffer? Verse 17. He makes, how often is the candle of the wicked really put out? How often comes their destruction upon them? And he goes on and he's basically going to make this comment. Are they really like the stubble that's blown away like the wind? Does that really happen to every wicked person you know? And by the way, if, if Job asked you that question, how would you respond? Would you say, every wicked person I know, that their life has just blown away quickly, they've not enjoyed wickedness at all? No, I, I've, I, know, some, I know some very vile people. I mean, some extremely vile individuals that I worked for one for a period of time. And he just, working for him and with him was just one of the worst times in my life. And he could lie about employees, he could cheat about employees, and guess what? He got away with it. And he was like, I don't understand this. I'm trying to serve the Lord and have an upright testimony. He mocks, he criticizes, he belittles. The owners of the company were born again. Oh my word, when they weren't in the room, what he would say about them in vile things, terrible things, awful things. And guess what? He kept on getting raises and promotions. And I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that. That's what Job's talking about. Job is going up and he's going to say, he basically he's turning and saying, Zophar, if, if this is true, okay, Zophar, if this is true, if God lays the iniquity upon the children, and that's what he's implied earlier in, in chapter 21 and in his previous speech, Zophar has made the comment that what happens is the wicked, sometimes their children will suffer for the wicked's wickedness. And their children will die. Again, who are they pointing to as an example? Job. Job, your kids died because of your wickedness. Okay, and one of them said, remember earlier, said, and your kids were wicked too. But they, they, they had all three had previously said, your kids died because God has punished your kids for your wickedness. Okay, keep that in mind. So when Job is speaking in these next couple of verses, he is saying, God lays up his iniquity for the man's children. He rewards him and he doesn't know it. His eyes shall see his destruction and shall drink of the wrath of God. For what pleasure has he in his house after him when the number of his months is cut off in the midst? Let me paraphrase what he's doing. Why would God do that? In my mind, Job is saying, 
If you're going to punish somebody for the wickedness, you punish the parent who's doing it or the child. What would you think? Would you punish the doer or his offspring? The doer. The doer. That's what Job is basically saying. He said, I I think God should reward the wicked father with his own punishment, not his kids. Because basically, if the kids see the dad being disciplined for evil, will the kids learn from that? Yes or no? Yeah, that, that's the point. It's almost like some of you have gone, you've done that, some of your teens have been in Williamsburg over the years, and you visited down in Williamsburg where they have those old things called stocks. And you get there, and a lot of you had your pictures taken, or you sat on the ones where your feet were in the stocks. Why did they put people in these And when they shall lie down alike in the dust, and they're both going to have the same conclusion, and it says, I don't, you know, I, I don't understand these things. I don't understand how come some people enjoy good health and other people don't. I don't understand how some people have riches and prosperity and some people don't. I don't understand that. And he said, they die, they both end up in the same spot, and they end up as dust. He says, but I know this, I know it's true, the wicked will be punished, you know, in judgment day, but I just don't understand this. Why do some bad things happen to good people? Why is it that somebody here and somebody there might have difficulty, but somebody there and somebody here who sit in the same area and who say the same things, one's rich and one's not. One has good health, long life, and the other, they, you know, their family suffered horrible, horrible things to their kids early in life. I, I don't get it. And Job basically ends up. He says, you know, to me, why doesn't God just make it amply clear That's my kid, and always and every time show his pride and his enjoyment for his... Why isn't God like you as parents or grandparents? When you go to see a program, you go to see a play, you go to see something, and when your kid or grandkid comes out on the stage, all of a sudden the camera comes up, and you're taking all the pictures, and anybody looking in the auditorium can tell that's their kid. They are beaming. The grandparents are just thrilled. Listen, look at my wonderful grandchild. They are the best one up there on stage. And they're excited. Why doesn't God do that with us all the time? Why doesn't just God just beam out for us and show his approval and his favor and, and come at the, at the time of giving the applause? Why isn't God giving every one of us a standing ovation all the time? And letting us have lead roles. And he's asking the, those serious questions. Now, when you, when you get to the end of the chapter, he's asked all these questions. Then he turns and says, Zophar, if you don't think this is true, then get out of your little tent and go and see the real world. Go and ask people who have traveled. Go and ask people who have lived life. You keep on saying, this is the way it's always been. If it changes, the world's turned upside down. Maybe in your little village in your little hamlet. But he says, go and ask people who have seen life. They have traveled all over. They have seen multiple different cities and towns. They're going to tell you that the wicked do prosper at times. They're not always punished quickly. They're going to tell you that there's difficult moments. And remember where Job is ending up. Job is believing he is being punished by God. He doesn't know why it's happening. 
He, he believes God has turned against him. He, he says, I haven't done anything wrong. And he ends the session. No prayer, no praise, no magnum opus like we talked this morning. This is just, guys, here's my questions. So what do we do with this text? How do we walk away from this text? Can I make some deep, and I, I'm, not, I'm not profound. I was going to say profound, but I, I can't come up with a profound. But can I pose some difficult applications, some difficult conclusions to this text? Just dealing with this passage right here at this moment. I think this is some of the thoughts that, that I would conclude out of the text. Although hesitant, godly persons know it's okay to respectfully ask and explore deep questions. The questions of life. Godly people know that there's nothing wrong with at times lamenting before the Lord and saying, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. Oh, that's right. We're not supposed to do that, are we? We're not supposed to ever ask God. And yet you read Job doing it. You read Jeremiah doing it. You read Moses doing it. You read David doing it. You read Asaph doing it. You have the Apostle Paul saying, Lord, uh, can you... I, I don't understand why I'm in prison. I don't understand why you don't answer my prayer. And they can ask the Lord these questions and seek an answer from him. And they don't feel they're being irreverent, by the way tone is everything. They don't believe that it's being a situation where they're blaspheming, but they're expressing, God, this is what I'm confounded by. This is where I'm confused. God, this is, this is where I'm battling. And God is not threatened by you and I asking questions. Neither, like I illustrated before, a child coming up and saying to you, um, how do you know Jesus is really God? Don't respond again. Oh, you can't ask that question. Answer it. God isn't challenged. God isn't unmoved from his throne by us asking some of those questions. In fact, um, there's times, let me back up, there's times here that, that it's good to ask some of those questions. Uh, here's a person lamenting. Here's a story of an individual. It's written in Swindoll's commentary on Job. And he talks about friends of his that he went to seminary with. This is in the early 60s. And uh, his friend Dennis and his wife Lucy, um, they were in seminary. They had kids about the same time Swindoll's had kids. And they went separate ways to separate ministries. And the character in this story, this Dennis and his wife, they were living in L.A. now. He's pursuing his Ph.D. in counseling, Christian counseling. And during that time, Dennis and Lucy had a baby boy whom Dennis absolutely adored. After he graduated from seminary, they moved to L.A. where he furthered his education with the goal of helping people who struggled through difficult childhoods so that they could move on and have productive Christian lives. In the midst of his Ph.D. studies, their little boy stumbled into a swimming pool in the neighbor's backyard and drowned. They lost their precious son, devastating Dennis, who was studying how to help other people. Years later, Dennis admitted to me the way he had responded to the loss. And he told me this story. I got in my car, having just lost my boy. I grabbed the steering wheel and drove almost every freeway in Los Angeles. During those hours, I screamed out to God, expressing all the grief, sadness, confusion from deep within my soul. I said things to him in that car that I'd never say to anybody. I yelled it out, and it wasn't very nice. I just vomited all of my frustrations and difficult moments out to God. 
Near dawn, Dennis pulled into the driveway of their small home. His shirt was dripping wet with sweat. He turned the key and dropped his head onto the steering wheel, still gripping by, gripped by his hands, sobbing with giant heaves. He said, quote, I was con- comforted with this thought. God can handle my difficulty. He can handle everything I said. He will give me answers in the days to come. Unquote. What a great thought. And a humbling thought. This is the author not commenting. A humbling truth of God's condescending grace towards his very own. I'm not condoning blasphemy. I'm not suggesting taking it out on your best friend. However, when you finally ask questions, even when you're screaming them at the top of your lungs, God is listening. He is listening when you ask some forbidden questions that Christians sometimes think they're not supposed to ask. At the end of Job 21, we do not find God wielding a club and saying, okay, Job, yeah, you've gone too far. No, Job could handle, God could handle Job. God can handle his questions. He remains steady even while his children are suffering and confused. So let me encourage you to ask questions at times that once, once you thought were off limits. In the meantime, then keep your trust in the Lord. And again, we're not, I'm not advocating blasphemy, but I am advocating that if you are confused, you can lament before the Lord and share your heart. And so God, the people know that I can, I can say to the Lord, here's where I'm at. And here's the irony. Sometimes we feel like we can't say to God where we are at or what we feel as if God doesn't know. But the reality is, he knows. He knows what we're stumbling and struggling through. So let's just be open with him. Number two, here's a thought for you. Although one may have good theology, they may know their Bible, they may have the theological you know, answers to questions, Godly persons know God's doings are not always easily understood or easily explained. Godly people understand that God doesn't always work in a box. That God does, here, let me, at times we don't understand what God is doing. There are times that, that we have to realize God never intended us to understand everything. In fact, when Paul is praying and saying, I don't want this thorn in the flesh, God's response to him is, my grace is, that's it. That's his response. The godly knows this. God is and is always above us. The the, the idea is, is this thought. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Oh, the depth, as Paul wrote, of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. Do we always understand why God does what he does in our lives? The answer is no. We don't always understand. Why did somebody die? Why did somebody have this disease? We don't understand all the answers. Why did I have to lose my job? Why did they treat me this way? We don't have the answers, but we do have this assurance. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord. But we don't know how that's going to work out. We don't understand. We don't understand then what, what good is going to come out of it. We don't know. That, that's, that's the reality. Therefore, there are times that the best answer that we can give to a friend, to a co-worker, to a fellow Christian who is going through a deep, deep trial, sometimes the best answer is the most honest answer. When they look at you and they say, why did my child die? 
You don't want to say to them, well, they're in better hands. I mean, what did you just imply? You're one of Job's friends, just ripping their heart out even more. When they look at you and they say, you know, why is it that I lost my car, I lost my house, I lost my, you know, whatever, and they list off all those things and they've got tears going down their cheek. What is probably the honest answer at times? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why God is allowing this. And you and I, by nature, we want to have better answers. And we want to explain how God always works a certain way. Doesn't that sound like Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar? They've got in a box. The reality is, we don't know, but he is still God and deserves our worship. That's exactly what Job talked about this morning. I am here. I don't understand. I'm struggling. It doesn't make sense. But this I know that my Redeemer lives. I don't know. And though he slay me, yet will I... Yep. Let's go to number three. Godly persons realize God deals with different people in a variety of ways of life. This idea that, oh, it's always going to be this way for the righteous, and it's always going to be this way for the wicked, that we know isn't true. This we know is a fact. We know that some saints enjoy physical blessings and others don't. That's true. We know this. Some saints experience serious trials and others don't. I, I, I can't help it. I'm, I'm, the, the people are flooding through my mind right now. Why is it that some of our folk in our flock, they don't get the answers from the doctors? And by the way, doctors are not God. They're limited. But if you are the one who is suffering intense pain and agony and your life is totally disrupted because you can't walk the way you want, you can't work the way you want, and you come to church and you look around and you go, what's wrong with me? Why is it that I am struggling so bad? Why is it I've got the difficulties? Because I look across the auditorium, or not really that far, just down the pew, and some of the people sitting in the same pews that I'm sitting in, they don't have these same difficulties. They don't have the same problems. Some of you, some of you experience adversity because of family's rejection of your faith and accusations against you. And others of us, we don't have, a, we don't have anything coming against us. Questions. How come some believers or some people live long lives and others don't? Question. How come some are able to get married and have children and some they can't even find a spouse? Or they get married and they don't have kids. They're barren. Question. How come some have greater opportunities and gifts that others don't have? Question comes up and our answer is this is totally at God's discretion. This is that play of those terms, the sovereignty of God. Why do you have hair and I don't? Who chose that? It wasn't me. Who chose us? Who chose that way? Why is it, and I'm not being silly, but this is the reality. Why is it some people can lose weight and the rest of us look at food and we gain it? Why is that? You know, the thin people will say, it's all your fault because you eat so much. They're the, they're the Eliphaz and the Bildads and the Zophar that have the answers. And it's not always because 
People don't gain weight because they eat so much all the time. Sometimes it's metabolism. Who made the metabolism? It's God. And so the bottom line is, he's still God and deserves our worship. Job is concluding this. This is where Job's at. I don't understand why. Why do you guys still have your kids? Why do you have your crops? Why do you have your farms? And I don't. You're saying it's because of wickedness. And I'm saying that's just not true. That's not a fact. And he's going to end up concluding where the book is, God, nobody tells God what to do. God blesses some with lots of life and and full life, and God doesn't bless some with full lives. This is discretionary with God Almighty, and God can do it because he's... Since God chooses to deal with different people in different ways, can I give you some one tidbit of advice? Godly persons realize it's not wise to compare your life with other lives. Job is struggling with this. This is, this is where Job is tripping up by getting caught up with the comparisons. But the reality is it's not good for us to dwell. Why do, why do some have and I don't? Like this. Why do some have money, lots of money, or lots of kids, and I don't? Or this. Why is it that some have good health and, and I don't? Why is it that some have brilliant kids and I didn't? Okay, why is it that some have easy times to learn? Some students, they can look at the material and they got it. Some of us, we looked, we, let, you know, we slaved over it, and we still didn't get it. Why is it I can't play sports? This is me. Why is it I can't play sports or an instrument like some of you? Because I just think you're sick. Okay. If I dwell upon that, can that be depressing and discouraging? Yeah. Why, no. Why do I look this way and some of you look like, wow? Why do they still have their loved one? I, I, why do you have your mom and I don't? See how easy it is for us to get caught up with this? And godly people say, okay, that's just... Some of this is in the hand of God. And the bottom line is, God can deal with us in different ways, and that's okay because he's God. He's God. Now, Job is still going to struggle. I don't understand it, God. I still have a question. But I do know, which leads us to this spot, godly persons keep on trusting the Lord in their situations because that is ultimately... (laughs) This is so non-profound, just... What's our alternative? What's our choice? Do you remember when the disciples come to Jesus and and Jesus is preaching to the crowd and he's just fed the thousands and then he gives this message about, hey, listen, you came following me for for all the food, but I'm going to tell you, if you're really going to be serious about following me, you have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. You have to sacrifice and pick up your cross. And and he gives them this, this litany of real dedication, real service, real relationship, not just following Jesus for good things. Oh, by the way, that's exactly where most people are. I follow Jesus so that I get rewards. That's what Satan said Job was doing. And so Jesus preaches a message, and the, the apostles, it says this, it says, and all the disciples, all his group followers, not the 12, they all left him. And the disciples, Jesus turns to them, and he says, will you also go away? And do you remember their response? 
to whom shall we go? What's our alternative? If we're not trusting the Lord, then we're trusting in us. And part of our problem is with us is we don't think we've got everything that's worthwhile. We don't think we've got the strength, the skills, and we don't understand why God didn't make us that way, but we're going to trust in us. So the godly person knows this is the best thing we can do. Just trust the Lord. Rely upon the Lord, knowing that he's the one. We don't understand what he's doing all the time, and that's okay, but he is God. And Job just, Job just poured this out through the book so far. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God foolishly. Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, he did not sin with his lips. What did we read? What did we study so far? Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I will maintain mine own ways before him. He shall be my salvation. What did he say? All the days of my appointed time will I wait until my change comes. Thou wilt call, and I will answer you. What did he say, what we talked about? Behold, my witness is in heaven, my intercessor on high, and I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the last day upon the earth, and I shall see him in my own flesh. Just outpouring after outpouring of, I don't understand, I don't understand, but you're God and you deserve my worship. You're God, you deserve my worship. You're God, you deserve my worship. And I will trust you in all situations. So, this week, will you pray and follow his leading at work and school? Will that be real in your life? This week, will you patiently, patiently, Let him work in the heart of individuals as you share the gospel and let him do his sovereign work in their life. Will you? Will you trust him with that problem person at school, that problem person at work, that you will say, hey, listen, I am going to do what's right and I'm going to leave the results to God. Uh, You're in class and they want you to write a paper and they're going to flunk you. If you write a paper that you think they're going to flunk you, if you write a paper about creation versus evolution, let's say, and you say, no, I'm, just, I'm going to stand for truth and trust the Lord. Will you be an individual? You say, I'm going to be faithful in trusting the Lord, and, and I, I'm going to do what he wants me to do, and I'm not going to be caught up. I'm not going to be caught up with the idea of I've got to finagle my finances and I'll just keep what I normally give to the Lord. I'm just going to keep it because I'll have to just work it out. No, we give, we trust. We do. We go to the problem person, we deal with it biblically, we confront or we graciously point it out, and we trust. We give the gospel and we trust. We rely upon him for those major decisions that are coming up, and we don't say, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? We trust. We trust, we trust, we trust. We rely upon him. And in the middle of the reliance, we give him praise in the middle of the difficult days. I had somebody say to me this morning, and it was so classic. They walked out and they say, you know, I have moments like Job since I've lost my spouse. I have moments like Job where I sit in my room and I go, God, I don't understand this. I feel so incomplete. I feel so unable to face the day, but I'm going to trust you. And they asked me this question, is it okay that I say to God, God, I don't know how I'm going to do it? And our answer is, yes, it's okay. But we trust. And they say, well, then I do, and I say those things, and then I start singing a hymn. 
And boy, does that make me feel better. What a wise Christian that person is. What wisdom, what grace on their part. Will you worship and trust the Lord in all situations in this week?